We, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 today, if you'd like to look there. You know, we've sent 30, what, 38 people out of the country in the last couple of weeks. Sent some to Mexico, some to Cuba to do ministry. I want to sort of contextualize what I'm going to say in the next few moments by saying, but God sent you here to Branch County. Either you're born here or, like me, he sent you here with work to do to represent him and his kingdom in this place. If we don't get that, the teaching on prayer is always going to be skewed. I want you to understand you're here on mission. I'm going to um, compress what I'm going to say today. But on Wednesday night, I'm going to decompress it. We're going to unpack the kind of stuff we talk about. So we carry on the conversation on Wednesday nights over at Bigby Coffee. I want to invite you to come. You can pick up one of these little sheets out there where the CDs are, whether you come or not, and just use that as a way of thinking through the text and what God might be saying to you and how it applies to our lives. And then we'll do that as a group on Wednesday night at Bigby Coffee. So come. You'll enjoy yourself. We have a good time there. I noticed something in the New Testament regarding prayer that I hadn't noticed before. There are 50 verses in the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are 50 verses in the Gospels that use some form of the word prayer, and many others that refer to prayer using different terminology. So there is a considerable um, subject matter and emphasis on prayer in the Gospels, Matthew through John. What I noticed for the first time is that nearly all of it, instructions, examples, commands, nearly all of it concerns individuals. Jesus goes off alone to pray. He teaches the disciples how to pray. Uh, he urges people not to give up praying. He promises answers to prayer offered in his name. But the teaching is almost entirely suited to individuals. The closest thing to an exception that I can find comes in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19. I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. So almost all the teaching in the Gospels refers about prayer refers to individuals. Then you come to the book of Acts, and it all changes. Now there are very few individuals praying in isolation. There's some. Ananias is praying in his home. Peter's praying on the roof of Simon's house in Joppa. But most of the prayer times recorded in Acts are corporate. In 1.14, they all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In 1.24, they prayed together. They prayed about an important decision that this new church had to make. In chapter 2, they devoted themselves to prayer. In chapter 3, we see Peter and John going off to pray, and that sounds like the Gospels, but they're going together. In chapter 4, the entire group of them prays together in response to a threat. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. In chapter 6, the apostles give themselves to prayer. In chapter 13, a group of church leaders are praying together to discern God's will. Something happened between the Gospel stories and the, the time of the book of Acts. 
something that took individuals and made them a group, that took parts and made them a whole, that took eyes and ears and hands and made them a body. And that something was the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who helps us in our prayers as individuals, we saw all about that in Romans chapter 8, the same Spirit who helps us in our prayers as individuals helps us in our prayers as a group. We've spent most of our time in this series looking at principles that apply to an individual's prayer life. Today we want to look at the important place of corporate group prayer. Last week we saw that a healthy prayer life is comprised both of planned prayer on the one hand and spontaneous prayer on the other. The image that I used was an arrow. Just as the energy it needs to reach its target comes from a string that's connected to both limbs of the bow, our requests need both planned and spontaneous prayer to lift them heavenward. And something similar is true when it comes to solitary and corporate praying. They work in synergy. A person who never prays with other people will not have a powerful prayer life. Nor will a person who never prays alone. Both are necessary. Now we've been taught, often subtly, sometimes directly, but often subtly, that religion is a private matter. In America, freedom of religion is valued, but so is freedom from religion. Our culture emphasizes the private nature of spirituality. Our courts have been leaning towards that. Whatever you do is fine as long as you do it by yourself. In our evangelical heritage, our concern for the salvation of individual souls accentuates that, that um, private nature of the faith. But in emphasizing individual salvation, we have sometimes de-emphasized the corporate life of the church in the kingdom of God. And that's made it more difficult for us to pray or even to know how to pray as a group. But group prayer is a staple of the Christian life. So let me ask you, how often do you pray with others? Is your prayer life in balance? Is the bow strung on both ends? Let's listen to what the scriptures have to say to us. This is Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 23 through 31. On their release from being imprisoned, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's Psalm 2, by the way. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. 
They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now let me give you a little background to what I just read. Two of the apostles, Peter and John, were arrested, ordered to stop speaking in Jesus' name and performing actions as representatives of him. They were threatened, and then they were released. They went back to their friends, the church, and told them what had happened. So everyone there knows two things. One, if they keep talking about Jesus and acting as his representatives in the community, the authorities will almost certainly make good on their threats. And two, they can't stop talking about Jesus and acting as his representatives. That means they're between a rock and a hard place. These people have seen what happens to someone who stands in the way of a tyrant. They know that they, their families, and their friends who are with them in the kingdom of God could suffer horribly. If we suddenly found ourselves in their place, our finances, even our freedom threatened, what would we do? Write our congressman? Hire a lawyer? Form a committee? What did they do? They prayed together. This is verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. The phrase translated, they raised their voices together, is a little different in the original language. The word voices is actually a singular noun, voice, which emphasizes their unity. There's no word that directly corresponds with the word together. Instead, St. Luke uses a word that appears 11 times in the New Testament, 10 of which are in Acts. The other one is in Romans. This word doesn't appear until you get out of the Gospels. And that's significant. And it's important to our understanding of how prayer works in a group. In the Gospels, the early band of disciples was often divided and competitive. But after the coming of the Spirit, they were together. They were, as the King James translates this word, in one accord. They were of one mind, which is how some translations render it. The word denotes more, though, than just like-mindedness. It denotes a shared passion. The root of that word is a very passionate word. It's a, a shared emotion and desire. That doesn't happen very often in a group of people. And it never happens because people negotiate or debate or make compromises. It happens because people have joined Jesus, have received his spirit, and his spirit blends people with very different gifts and desires and approaches and IQs and transforms them into the one body of Christ. When the spirit does that, 
He does what he does in individuals, focuses and intercedes through them. He does that in a group. The key, though, whether individual or group, is that that person or group is for Jesus, about Jesus, and representing Jesus. There's no technique or procedure that can replace it. You can study all about prayer and, and use different methods for praying. And I would recommend you do that. That'd be great. But there's no substitute for being Jesus' person through and through. When loving Jesus and standing for him is genuine, the spirit will be present and remarkable things will happen through prayer. This kind of prayer is not just a bunch of people praying separately in the same place. It is a bunch of people praying as one person. When that happens, people don't lift their voices. They lift a voice which is what the text literally says. And that voice is the beautiful, persuasive, powerful voice of the body of Christ. That is always miraculous and an evidence of the immediate presence of God. Look how they address God with that voice. They call him Sovereign Lord. That's how the NIV translates it. The Greek is one word, despates, from which we get our word despot, one who exercises absolute control. That word recognizes that God is the master, we are the servants. God is the ruler, and we in all of creation are the ruled. These men and women believed that God is in control even when bad things happen, even when they get arrested and harassed and threatened. They believed God was in control even when their friend and teacher and leader and Lord was crucified, and he was in control when their friend and teacher and leader and Lord rose from the dead. They lifted that one sure voice to God who's in control. Is that how you feel about God? Is that how you feel when the doctor has bad news? Do you think of God as sovereign Lord then? Or when your child is hurt? Or your job is lost? Or your reputation is impugned? Or your finances are threatened? But that is precisely how people think about God who see answers to their prayers. Notice the context for this unified, powerful prayer. Yes, there was the threat of trouble, something that all of us experience, right? We all experience that. But it grew out of these Christians' witness to Jesus. The threat came because they were acting and speaking in his name. They were continuing his work in their community. They were representing the king as citizens of the kingdom. It's not hard for people to pray like this when they've been living like that. Something else I want us to notice here. We've seen it before when we looked at Nehemiah's prayers. These men and women built their prayers on the Bible. 
Now that happens when the spirit that inspired the Bible also inspires our prayers. See, the first line here of this prayer echoes King Hezekiah's prayer in 2 Kings 19. And then they quote at length from Psalm chapter 2. But here's what I want to understand. This is not technique. They're not trying to catch God in his words or use his words as leverage to get him to do what they want. They pray this way because they're inspired by the same spirit that inspired King Hezekiah and inspired the psalmist. What they asked for, maybe I should say what they didn't ask for, is surprising. I would have asked God to protect his people. Oh God, they're coming after us. You need to protect us. They don't even mention it. I might have asked God to engineer the resignation of the high priest. I mean, in these times, the Roman Empire changed high priests almost every year. I might have asked for that. I might have asked God to shuffle the membership of the high council. They don't do that. I might have asked for at least a sympathetic voice or to bring a good lawyer my way. Never crossed their minds. And why didn't it? Why didn't they ask for this? It's not that these people were okay with being humiliated and beaten and threatened and locked up. They were no more fond of that kind of treatment than you or I would be. And yet they, under the Spirit's leading, didn't ask God for protection. Why? Because they were sure they already had it. They believed that God was protecting them. They were praying to the sovereign Lord, the maker and master of heaven and earth, the one who loved them and gave his only begotten son for them. They trusted him. If he allowed them to suffer, as he had allowed his son to suffer, he would make it right. They were absolutely certain of that. Are you? Do you believe in that kind of God? So what did they ask for? They, this is verse 29, they asked God to consider the threats that had been made against them. They were certainly considering them. I mean, don't think that these people had no emotional response to this. They did. And they asked God to give them courage to speak his word with boldness. It's as if they said, together, as a group of people who were for each other and who knew that God was for them, it's as if they said, Master, we're scared. And we don't want to fail you because we're afraid. We need you to empower us to speak your word Boldly. Now, I know what happens when people hear that phrase, speak your word with great boldness. They think, oh, evangelism, telling people how to be saved, the kind of thing that Dave Brown and Mark Odisher are always doing. Well, that's not my gift. And then they get off the train right there. They think they don't need to be bold because they don't have the gift of evangelism. That's a cop-out. More than that, it's reading into the Bible something that isn't there. Did you think the apostles were arrested for presenting the four spiritual laws? No, they, were, they weren't thrown into prison or put on trial for telling someone how to get to heaven. 
In fact, if you read back through the chapter and chapter 3, they didn't even mention heaven. They were brought to trial for acting and speaking as representatives of Jesus. Remember what Peter said? The guy asked him for money. Peter said, I don't have any money. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus. That's what started all this. He acted with what he had. Every one of us can do that. And he did what he did in Jesus' name. He dared to interact with a person in need as Jesus' representative. We can do that. We should do that. And if we will do that, we'll learn more about prayer than we ever thought possible. These people not only ask for boldness, they ask God to stretch out his hand to heal, perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of his holy servant, Jesus. Now, you realize when you read that, don't you? They were expecting God to stretch out his hand through them. They weren't asking him to do these things somewhere out there. They were asking him to do these things through them. Now you might think, but I can't heal or perform signs and wonders. You don't have to. But you do have to give what you've been given. What you have. Money, time, work, a listening ear, a car ride, help with homework. Whatever it is, what you have, you have to be willing to give in the name of Jesus. As his person in this place. You need to be able to say, what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus. Now, I know that can feel weird. Sometimes I've done things for people. I've picked up hitchhikers or stopped and helped people who are broken down. And when they thanked me, I told them, I'm doing this because I belong to Jesus. I want to tell them it's in the name of Jesus that I'm doing that. I do this because I belong to Jesus. And when I've said that, you know what? It feels weirdly religious. I don't like feeling weirdly religious. Those people might think I'm some kind of nut, you know? Boy, I'm glad he didn't hurt me while he was here. That's one of those Jesus people. Most of those people never knew my name. But even years later, they might remember the name of Jesus. They don't need to remember me, but they need to know him. And what might it be like for us and for the people who do know our names to see us day in and day out living as Jesus' people, living for him in his kingdom? In that setting, God can do signs and wonders, and people's trajectory can be altered towards heaven. And we can pray together with one heart and one mind as people on the frontier of the kingdom of God. When they finished praying together with one heart and one mind, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Entire communities are shaken when people pray like that and live like that. Because you can only pray like that when you live like that.
It's ironic. The single biggest difference you can make in your prayer life isn't about how you pray. It's about how you live as a citizen and a representative of God's kingdom. So here's our challenge. To speak and act as Jesus' people, not being afraid of his name, as his representatives. To speak as Jesus' representatives to the school board, to the county commissioners, and to our neighbors. And by the way, if you're going to speak as Jesus' representative, you had better be loving and gracious. If you speak to get something off your chest, you're not speaking as Jesus' representative. We need to speak and act in Jesus' name to the friend who's going through a hard time, to the person who is heedlessly running toward ruin and toward hell, to the atheist and to the religious hypocrite, to speak in Jesus' name for truth and to act in his name for justice. What kind of person dares to do that? Who am I to do that? One who is devoted to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Or as I told you before, how this is, could be literally translated, devote yourselves to prayer, watching in it with thanksgiving. That's the kind of person who dares to live in Jesus' name. The one who wants to be involved in what God is doing around him or her and realizes that God is doing something the one who lives in and for God's kingdom, the one who calls Jesus Lord. What kind of person dares to do that? The kind of people hear a sermon like this and something inside them answers, yes, Lord, for you and for your kingdom. The kind of person like you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I've asked you again and again to teach us to pray. But today I had teach us to live as men and women and children of the kingdom, as people who are for Jesus, as people who have been saved by Jesus. Lord, teach us to live. In the name of your Son, Jesus, our Master.